sales of individual water rights out of irrigating communities had to be subject to approval by the entire community. The fight for water. We all need it, but do we have a right to it? How do we manage all this? And where is this all going? There's a huge, huge, huge space in all of this for highly skilled communication. And that communication is going to have to take in an understanding of the totality of the complexity of the situation. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. Dr. Najem Rahim, welcome to Campus on the Common. It's good to be here. So today we're going to talk about water rights. I'd love to go into water rights, especially if we could take a look at water rights in terms of a communication element. Okay. We're seeing more attention being paid to where our water comes from, who owns access to it, etc. You're an expert in water rights. How did you first get into that field? I got into the field because I was working on my dissertation in the economics department at the University of New Mexico, and my research was all about traditional irrigation systems in northern New Mexico. And these systems are called acequias, which is an old Arabic word that has entered into the Spanish five or six hundred years ago. And in northern New Mexico, the water rights issue that was of particular concern to my work was that these acequias have water rights that go back a couple hundred years. So they are senior water rights in the state, which means that in a time of drought, they're given priority. And so a lot of developers want to acquire those rights. So they would have senior rights, which means as water dries up, which it's going to do, they would have priority over other users. So there was a lot of pressure on these fairly poor communities, these fairly poor irrigating communities, to sell their water rights on markets. Selling water rights in the market, is it much like buying real estate? It's similar, but there's some interesting differences to it. So, for instance, New Mexico is, generally speaking, part of the way that water rights work in the western United States, which is what's called the prior appropriation doctrine. So here in the eastern United States, we have what's called the riparian doctrine. Riparian meaning alongside a river, right? So if you're adjacent to a body of water, you will have a certain amount of water rights, a certain volume and duty of water rights here in the east. Whereas in the western United States, because it's so much drier and because, for instance, mining operations often took place quite a distance from the water they needed to either operate their machinery or to sluice out, um, you know, to sluice out a mine, they developed this mechanism, this legal mechanism called prior appropriation, which is also called first in time, first in right. So let's say you and I live alongside a river. I'm going to say alongside just for convenience's sake in Nevada, but my family moved there in 1850 and started mining using water from the Brody Creek, let's call it, and your family moved there in 1880, my water rights are senior to yours. So even if you take water out of the Brody Creek, so-called, and put it to use, in times of scarcity, my water rights get priority. The other thing about that, and the component of the prior appropriation doctrine that's so different from the riparian doctrine, is you do not need to be adjacent to the water. All right, so I don't know if you've read Cadillac Desert by Mark Reisner. You know the movie Chinatown, mm -hmm. the old Nicholson movie? It's about a similar conflict about water getting to Los Angeles, right? So Los Angeles historically was a pretty small Pueblo. It wasn't a very big town until 
I think after the First World War, really. And part of the reason is that the LA River just it's not a very big creek, right? So there's not a ton of water coming down through LA on a regular basis. So you can't have the kind of farming growth that would typically be the basis for a city or the kind of trade growth, even though it's on the ocean. So a lot of water in California was diverted from Colorado River and different parts of Northern California to both feed the Imperial Valley and the, um, I'm blanking on the names of some of the other big growing valleys in Southern California. A lot of those are actually dry inland areas. So water was diverted from the Colorado River and other major water bodies to feed the economic growth of that area. The same is true of Las Vegas, for instance. Las Vegas, Nevada diverts a huge amount of water from the Colorado River, which is not far from the city, but in the Western United States, you can move water considerable distance away from its point of origin if you own those water rights. So there will be competition to buy them. In that way, it's a little different from real estate because real estate is typically you buy it and you own the land that you're on. You may manage land elsewhere. So in that way, it is similar. The other thing that's kind of an interesting difference is different states have different ways of interpreting this. So typically, under the prior appropriations doctrine, people will say that, well, the law will say that in order to have a right, in order to have a water right, is to say like legitimate, legally recognized access to use a certain volume of water over a certain period of time, you need to demonstrate that it's being put to what's called beneficial use. And beneficial use historically was ag well, it was ag <laughs> historically, right? Uh, but also increasingly now, municipal or industrial. So there's some clear economic benefit from it. One of the things that's changing about this in countries like Australia, Ecuador, to a lesser extent, Cambodia recently are beginning to give nature itself a right to exist. So that nature, the functioning, so you have a river um, and you have that river is used by habitat for fish or or crawfish and you know birds eat the fish there's all these just bi biological interactions the middle rio grande for instance goes through albuquerque would be completely dry uh, by the end of summer sometimes and certain species that were on the endangered species list would be put in tanks and kept at the state engineer's office and new mexico began along with a couple of other western states to create a category of beneficial use called in-stream flow. It was legitimate to have water rights if you kept the water in the river and didn't take it out. So historically, you would have had to take it out of the river to put it to beneficial use, because what good is it in a river? I mean, it's just there. It's not doing any good for humans, right? Now there's this concept of beneficial in-stream flow. So that's, that's one other big difference. And the other one is in these Asekia communities, there are more differences, but these are two that are really sort of central to my work. In the Asekia communities, they figured out that, let's say you have 20 people irrigating their crops off of one river. If one person sells their water rights to, let's say, an upstream user, that means that that volume of water isn't going to come downstream to those people. If 10 people, if half the community sell their water rights to a city upstream, then they're going to have less uh, what they call head by hydrologic pressure in the system, right? So by the time you could have a whole community that's, or let's say nine-tenths of a community that sells its water to somebody else, there may not be adequate pressure in the main stem of the river to actually drive the irrigation system. So New Mexico passed legislation saying that sales of individual water rights out of irrigating communities had to be subject to approval by the entire community, which 
is how water rights work in Mexico and a lot of Latin American countries, but typically not how they work in the U.S. Water rights are seen as a purely private right in the United States. But historically, in, in New Mexico, before as before a state, and definitely still in parts of Mexico, I think most of Mexico, and a lot of Andean countries, for instance, you can't just buy and sell the water as though it were a car or a house. It needs to be subject to a community approval process. And so that's true in some parts of New Mexico now, which is quite a radical change. Well, it's interesting, the eminent domain element where the state or elements of a state and organization within a state body saying, okay, we're, we're holding on to this amount of water for the good of all, whether it be nature or something else. But what happens when the water crosses state line? There's a couple of things. So the Rio Grande rises in Colorado, if I'm right, flows down south through Colorado into New Mexico, and then kind of takes the curve to create the border between Texas and the country of Mexico, right? By the time the Rio Grande gets to El Paso, basically, but even possibly to um, Las Cruces in New Mexico, by that by the time it gets to El Paso, the only water most of the time that's in the Rio Grande is actually from a tributary that flows north out of Mexico. There are these interstate water compacts. So there's a couple of parts to parts of that answer. This is part of the overwhelming issue of dealing with water, particularly in the western United States, or I guess any arid area, but definitely in the western United States, is that it's insanely complicated. It's embedded in history that doesn't make sense to an outsider. It only makes sense given the history. Colorado owes a certain amount of water to New Mexico under the Rio Grande Compact, the interstate compact. New Mexico owes a certain amount of water to Texas. If they don't meet that compact obligation, they can be sued state to state. Right Now, is the amount of water dependent, is it actually metric volume or is it a percentage of water available? It's measured in volume, and the volumetric measurement of choice in the western United States is acre feet, which is a flat area of an acre covered to the depth of one foot in water. And I can't remember how many gallons or cubic feet it is. But so if I remember the details of the compact correctly, that's... It's a fixed amount, but it's adjustable based on precipitation conditions. So a lot of times people will talk about what they call paper water, uh, which is to say, I have the water right to X many acre feet coming out of this river. There may not be that much water in the river at all. Needless to say, there would be, I don't know, 20 people sharing that reach of the river. So you may have a certain amount of water rights on paper. They may not exist in the world at all. And... The appropriation, that is to say, the parceling out of water when it was done starting, well, in New Mexico, starting with the Spanish, I guess, 1600s, but then starting with uh, Anglo-Americans in the 19th century, was done without respect to historical averages or really a concrete understanding of the hydrology of the region. The total allocation of water rights in a given basin isn't necessarily subject to the total amount of available water on average in that basin, just to how much that there was at the time of the water rights being taken out. Complicated indeed. When we look at climate change, what will be the future regarding water rights? It gets even more complicated. A lot of the rivers in the western United States are snow-fed, right? So you get snowpack in the mountains, you plant, you clean out your ditches kind of late spring, you start planting, and you expect that melt to come down the rivers in late spring into early summer. So you can divert that into your fields, right? So climate change, all the models point basically in the Western US to warmer winters and what we now think of as snow falling as rain. 
one common metaphor is that snowpack is a battery and it discharges water as energy as it melts. Well, if that all falls as liquid water in the winter, which is what it's doing more and more, there's nowhere to keep it. So one, you're going to have these wet winters where you won't get as much snowpack and you'll get water coming down the rivers earlier. And so they'll be dry come planting season because there's no battery that's charged up, right? So right now there is, in a lot of places, not a great legal mechanism or just an engineering mechanism to even store the water. So where are you going to keep it? So you, if you create a diversion and you create a reservoir, that thing itself needs to have some kind of water rights figured out for it. So that's a problem. The other problem is, so I've been working a lot in Montana on trying to help communities plan for worse and worse droughts. Right? So the other thing about a lot of the climate change models, they're predicting that droughts in the western United States are going to be hotter, longer, and drier. This creates a sort of a vicious cycle, right? So you have less water in the landscape. It means you could have long-term ecological changes in terms of plant species, plant communities, tree cover, things like that. You could have the kind of cycles that we're seeing from British Columbia all the way down to Baja California with more intense fire seasons, right? Those arise from water, more water falling during the winter. So you get more biomass, just more trees, more plant cover, and then really hot, dry summers with an enormous amount of tinder. So all of that begins to start creating other problems and having the storms be out of sync with what, you, what we're used to. So climate change promises basically to make the allocation and negotiation of sharing water way more complicated. That in addition to the fact that over since definitely since the 70s, people like the climate of the dry Southwest and they move there. So you got a lot of people living where historically you had really, really thin populations spread out across the landscape. People could move, right? You had some Pueblos, some permanent settlements, but now people are living in cities like Jackson and Las Vegas and God help Phoenix, you know? So I think there's a lot of things that are coming together to make it pretty complicated. And at least in my experience and talking with folks who've been in New Mexico for generations, they talk about when there's enough, basically the, the sort of line is when there's enough water, everything works perfectly. And when it's not, it's just a fight. But the rules don't change because then the next year maybe there's enough water. And so you don't need to fix it. And then the next year is dry. And then it's dry for a couple of years. But then it rains. So it's like the cycles are choppy enough that a lot of the underlying legally now insufficient mechanisms don't get adjusted. I don't know. I think we're going to be seeing a lot of green infrastructure, sort of changes in how you manage the landscape in order to store more, more water just on the landscape. One of my favorite terms from some work I've been doing recently is beaver mimicry. So basically beavers, you know, they build dams and they, they make ponds and they make, they, make, they make flowing water stop. So now humans are trying to replicate that. So you've got sort of natural water storage along these rivers instead of building a dam and a reservoir, which silts up and dries out and tends to be in lower elevation places. So doing more of this green infrastructure work in higher elevations where it's going to evaporate less. There's a huge mix of, I think, engineering and management and biology that's needed. But to get back to your original question about communication, there's an enormous need for communication in all of these situations because they get hostile really fast. There's a lot of misinformation. Uh, when I was working in New Mexico, people would say, oh, the state's trying to retire my water rights because they owe water to Texas. There was a belief in a lot of the farming community that the state of New Mexico, via the state engineer's office, had an incentive to take people's water rights away 
because we owed that water to Texas. In my conversations and in my reading of the law, that's just not the case. And they don't do it very often anyway, but this myth persists, right? And nobody does a good job at clearing it up. Or it's, I should say it's very hard to clear it up, right? So I think there is a tremendous, tremendous need for communication across many, many parts of the issue. Are there typically situations where there are individual water rights that are fighting against a much bigger corporation that has deeper pockets and a well-staffed legal bench? I mean, I'm an economist, so I look at these things kind of game theoretically. You've got this cooperation dilemma where you have uh, sort of an asymmetry of power. You have, let's say, a small community of 10 families, and they all have water rights, and you have a city or, or Intel. Right, Intel uses a lot of water from the Rio Grande, and, so, and they need really high-quality water. So you have industry like that wanting to buy up water rights so they could have access to senior water rights. So you have a tremendous amount of pressure on relatively low-income individuals often in these communities. You could say they're sort of land-rich but cash-poor. Uh, so they may have valuable land or valuable water rights, but that's not immediately convertible to money unless you sell it. But once you sell it, it's gone, right? So there's a lot of pressure, at least that's felt in a lot of these poorer communities to sell their water rights in order to just get enough money. So it's true. So groups like the New Mexico Asequia Association that I was telling you about earlier, they do a lot of work to provide legal assistance to farmers. You know, these guys, again, maybe their family's been farming since 1715. They don't necessarily know or feel like they need to know, they do now, but historically, didn't necessarily need to know what the state water laws were because it's their land. They've been doing this for generations. Why would, it's sort of inviolable, right? Um, but it's not, or it isn't always. So New Mexico Legal Aid, the Aseki Association, a couple of state agencies do a really good job at making, this is another communication thing, right, of making laws digestible and understandable. Water law is not easy to read. <laughs> you know, no law is easy to read, and nobody has time for it except lawyers. I think that's another really interesting communication function that's typically done, again, by attorneys who are often volunteers. There's a lot of over, maybe not a lot, but there's a fair amount of resources for folks in those communities to protect themselves against that pressure. How much faith can we put in future technology to solve some of these problems? That's a great question. I would think that we can probably put a reasonable amount of faith in it, but the technology is only going to work, maybe not only, I don't mean to be extreme about it, but I think the technology is going to work effectively in a situation where currently at odds communities can discuss these issues, figure out what the technology would be used for and how and under what circumstances. Because as it is now, things have changed recently, but until recently, a lot of communities in New Mexico, for instance, less so in Montana, for instance, or Colorado, they've been very averse to even measuring the amount of water, like even putting meters on their ditches. They kind of don't want people to know how much water they're using. There's so much suspicion of state agencies. And again, that's changed lately. It's for the better, I think. Um, but there's a lot of suspicion between different water using communities, right? So that technology, I think, will only function with an improved communication and understanding between these communities, unless it's the kind of technology that functions at a broad enough scale that it just makes more water available somehow. That's gonna be complicated too. I think a lot of the applications are gonna be really good landscape management, really good water storage, or really good snowpack measurement and prediction, at least in the short run. 
I think a lot of it's going to be more about being able to gauge future states of nature. But then also, you know, whatever, there's probably higher quality pipes and conduits and just components of an irrigation system and things like that. We should be able to make some gains with technology. I just feel like the underlying issue is, is totally human. And I think that the distrust and conflict will persist until it is resolved. So I don't, the technology may not help to resolve the conflict. That's my concern. Could you give me a better understanding of how the current system works? So the water would start up in Montana or something like right. that. Is it measured there? Are there are there periodic meters to understand just how much water volume we have in store? Yeah. So typically, this the federal agency that's in charge of that. The way I understand it is typically the U.S. Geological Survey, right? So USGS has stream gauges on. I'm not a hydrologist, but I know on all major rivers and on a lot of the headwaters and smaller branches. So now streams branch into second and third order, and there's all this stuff as they get smaller and smaller into these little capillaries, right? And so about 10 years ago, I was working with someone from USGS who was pointing out that they don't actually have super high resolution stream flow data on smaller streams in the Southern Rockies, for instance, right? But, so there was all this flooding in the lower Missouri River very recently, right? Along the upper Missouri and the headwaters in the upper Missouri, which is where I've been working recently, there is pretty good monitoring of water flow. They've got stream gauges in some really crucial spots, and those data are usually available continuously, right? And they're used to a certain extent in long-term planning and monitoring. Once you get into smaller order streams, and definitely once you get into, you know, small, really small tributary streams uh, or distributary streams, the quality of data goes down. It's just hard to have high-quality data everywhere. Um, but so there's one thing is you generally have a lot of data on main stem rivers and that's used in planning to an extent one of the things i learned uh, when i was in montana is that because of the nature of climate change where the usgs and other agencies typically measure snowpack is no longer adequate because they tend to measure it fairly high up on the mountains but the snowpack is receding so you may still have similar snowpack there but your overall volume of snow is much less because on the lower shoulders and the lower slopes, there's just no pack at all. A smaller battery. Exactly, it's a smaller battery, right? So using the higher elevation snowpack as a measurement of or a proxy for the overall volume of snow is becoming less and less accurate. So there's got to be a modification of that understanding, right? Um, so I think, and I know that a lot of federal agencies are scrambling to adapt how they monitor the presence and movement of water in these landscapes because timing is changing, uh, the way that storms work is changing. Uh, so I think in general, in general, the effort is to have high quality, really widespread data. Um, but I think they're probably encountering a number of issues that are making that pretty complicated. To me, it sounds like we've got a situation where there's a limited resource, people have legal access to a certain amount of that resource, keeping track of how much of that resource you use would not be to your advantage because you could be held accountable. Mm. We've got all this growth and all this pressure from cities and industry and agriculture, et cetera, limited resource, climate change adding extra pressure. I could see this becoming a huge economic burden for the development in the West. Yeah. Without water, yeah. you, don't, you have limited life. Yeah. I think it could be a tremendous economic burden. I forgot one aspect of technology that I I should bring up because it's salient. So I'm sure this is happening elsewhere, but I have friends who 
teach or you, yes, friends who still teach at New Mexico State University, which is in Las Cruces. And Las Cruces is in a pretty hot part of southern New Mexico. It's kind of the borderlands of Mexico and Texas. But there's a fair amount of ag down there. It used to be cotton. I think there's still some cotton that's grown there. They still grow uh, pecans, you know, and uh, nut trees are very water intensive, right? And cotton is pretty water intensive. So one of the things a lot of the folks in the ag sciences program at New Mexico State have been working on is similar to these boxcar farms that we're seeing here or vertical indoor farms. They're working on growing crops in much, much smaller land area indoors under much more controlled circumstances. Hydroponically in some instances, they're also working on indoor uh, shrimp farming in southern New Mexico, right? So uh, one of the moves is to move agriculture into much more controlled, like climate controlled spaces where you have less evaporation, evapotranspiration of water. Uh, so that is a potential, that has got to be a huge part of the solution, right? But to your other point, I confess to a slightly apocalyptic bent on answering that question. Uh, to me, again, I always think of things in the historical scale, right? So places like Beijing, uh, places like the coast of New England or the coast of the Pacific Northwest in the United States have always been pretty densely settled. They've always been able to handle a higher density of human population than other parts of the continent. So to me, I always look at population concentrations before the discovery of oil, right? To me, oil just screws up your dynamic of how you can put people in different places because you can move stuff around with fossil fuels that you couldn't beforehand, right? So southwestern United States, especially the interior Intermountain West, places like Tucson, Phoenix, Albuquerque, um, there never were lots of people there. There's just not a lot of water. It's a wonderful place, but it's always been good for super hardcore uh, small communities, right? People who are really tough, work really hard. I know a couple of years ago, there were a bunch of reports. So first of all, you got things like the Ogallala Aquifer, this enormous aquifer that spans from, what, northern Nebraska, I guess, all the way down into Texas, right? This huge aquifer. Uh, it's very hard to model the dynamics of aquifer drawdown because it's hard to map the totality of water that's stored in these things. But, but large parts of the fringes of the Ogallala are going dry. So a lot of the more productive northern plain states farms are suffering from that, right? Then you have smaller pockets of groundwater in places in western New Mexico, let's say, or West Texas, or Arizona, or Nevada. And there was one town in New Mexico that got all of its water pretty much from groundwater. It wasn't near a big enough stream to regularly divert surface water. And I think their mayor put out an announcement that they basically, they figured they probably had 30, 30 years of water left. That they probably, they probably had, I'm gonna say it again, they had 30 years of water left. I'm not a biblical scholar, but my understanding is in the Bible, there are all these stories of cities that get sort of the wrath of God sinks them into the ground or covers them up with sand. Apparently, a bunch of archaeological researchers found out that a lot of times those cities that sank into the ground, what they were is they, they drew down their groundwater resources, which led to what's called subsidence or subsidence. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce it, where like in Florida, you get a sinkhole and the entire city will fall into this now honeycombed, fractured subsurface geology, right? So it's really because they overuse their water supply. Because they have the water underneath the sand backing exactly. up all the volume. Exactly. So you have this hydrostatic pressure of the water in the ground actually keeping that ground solid. You draw down the water and it just becomes this empty structure and your city falls into it, right? And we're seeing that Florida has this regularly, right? Um, Georgia has been having this. They Both of those states rely on groundwater a lot. Even though they're really wet places, they still rely on groundwater a lot. And um. My concern is that we have misunderstood 
the absorptive capacity of the West in terms of how many people it can handle. That's my that's a long term concern. And again, I will admit to an apocalyptic kind of bent on this. Um, but I think we've had it real easy for let's call it 100 years, maybe 150 in terms of people using water in the American West. Uh, if we can figure out desalination at a large enough scale, that might work, but it still doesn't solve the underlying problem. I was just about to ask you because yeah. I, I know, you know, one of our hundreds of thousands of listeners, snicker, snicker, yeah. someone's <laughs> wondering, well, why can't we just run some pipes into the ocean, suck up all that water, right. desal it, and then right. send it all the way across over right. to wherever? Yeah, it's possible. Desal right now is expensive enough that that's not reasonable. Uh, one other thing I learned just last week in a conversation with somebody who works for uh, NOAA's Marine Sanctuaries Program is it's not so much that people have rights to the water in the ocean, they sometimes have rights to the bottom of the ocean. And if you want to lay a pipe out into, let's say, the channel between Santa Barbara and the Channel Islands, you might be violating either international waters or protected areas. So it's not that simple to just stick a pipe in the ocean, first of all. Then second of all, desal creates byproducts. It creates a super concentrated brine. And what do you do with that? The Israelis apparently have a pretty good handle on it, the Saudis to a certain extent, um, but that's not operating at the scale of places like LA and San Diego. You know, I went swimming just south of that desal plant in Saudi Arabia. Okay. And what I can tell you is you drop into the water and you get out and you have to wash off your face yeah. really fast. Yeah. It's just God forbid yeah. some of that gets in your eyes, you're right. ruined. Yeah, and apparently desal, the discharge from desal, so it's salty water. You think of putting that back in the sea, it can increase the salinity of coastal waters to such a point that you have major die-offs. Because uh, fish are, they have a tolerance for salt. They can't handle unlimited amounts of salinity, right? So I'm not saying desal is not the solution. I'm just saying it is going to be a little while till we're there in terms of the scale. And it, it, it itself comes with its own problems. So, and then you're just going to desal enough water to draw it to feed Las Vegas? At what point do you make the cutoff? When do you make the call, you know? Do you have the infrastructure in place right now? Not really. It's one of those things. It's a really wicked problem in the sense that it's we don't we don't have a sense of what domain the solution lies in. It lies between law, engineering, economics, biology, hydrology, <laughs> meteorology, politics. By God, communication. I mean, there's so many disciplines that kind of adhere to it, right? Uh, that I I think the only way to even work on reducing it is a really significantly cooperative effort. And that's I mean that's it's happening to a large extent, but it's. It, I think it has to be that way. It has to be that way, and there needs to be. When we look at the challenges concerning water rights, specifically in the West, could you give us three takeaways? Yeah, I'd say the first takeaway is no solution will be easy. Maybe a better way to say that it is unlikely to have an easy solution. These problems are all super interrelated, right? They're super complicated, and they go back a long time, and people don't like to give things up, and they really don't like to give up water. So... No matter what, the solution is going to be complicated. Two, for anyone looking at it from the outside, um, a corollary, I guess, of that is that you have to be patient if you're trying to understand the system, right? Uh, I've heard a lot of people who are hydrologists from the East Coast or even from Ohio in the wet part of the Midwest. I've been to water conferences in the Western U.S. where hydrologists from the East will just start sort of pointing and laughing and saying, like, you guys are crazy. This is insane. You're going to kill yourselves. That doesn't help either. A privileged outsider perspective is of no value whatsoever because the way that the systems worked are the result of a bunch of sort of unintentional accretions over time, right? So I'd counsel a kind of degree of patience. The other thing, again, to get back to the beginning of 
what you were talking about is I think there's a huge, huge, huge space in all of this for highly skilled communication. And that communication is going to have to take in an understanding of the totality of the complexity of the situation. So, you know, right now you might have good communication between law and ag on certain circumstances, but then you don't have great communication between hydrologists and ecologists or between, in my, what I found in this recent work I've been doing in Montana, between ecologists and planners. And then between planners and farmers or between planners and folks who run ski basins. So, I mean, it's, it's like a really complicated web, but I think a crucial, crucial part of any solution or any even small fix is going to be some really skilled communication. And it's gonna to have to be sympathetic, it's going to have to be incredibly wise, and it's going to have to, whoever does it, is gonna to have to learn a lot. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. We spoke with Dr. Nejim Rahim, a professor at Emerson College and an expert on water rights. I'm your host, Mark Brody. We had engineering support from David Craighead and editorial direction from Andrew Cassidy. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communications. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.